When it comes to choosing a vacation the kids will never forget, Dylan Thuris of Atlas Obscura knows some truly bizarre destinations. All of these places aren't places you would actually necessarily want to take a family vacation or even could go. He's written a new guide for the world's most adventurous kids. D-Day expert Elwood von Seibold recommends what to see in Normandy to commemorate the events of June 6, 1944. If you want one cemetery, without any question of doubt, it's the National Cemetery at Colville somewhere above Omar Beach. It's also a busy time of year in Lisbon. Everything happens in June. We call it the month of the popular saints. Guides from Portugal get us ready to enjoy their charming capital. They are doing lots of beautiful renovation in the facades, with the tiles, with the azulejos, as we say. Find out what's new in Lisbon, explore the sites of the D-Day battles, and surprise the kids with the world's curiosities on today's Travel with Rick Steves. It's a trip that many Americans rate among the most moving of their lives. We'll commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day with the advice of historian Elwood von Seibold. He covers the sites you can explore from the Allied invasion of Nazi-occupied France. That's in just a bit. And guides from Lisbon update us on what to see and maybe even what to skip this year when you visit their lively city. The world really does offer an endless parade of wonders for travelers. Atlas Obscura started as an online collection of bizarre and obscure places and things around the globe. Then it became a best-selling book. To stimulate curiosity at an early age, they've now published the Atlas Obscura Explorer's Guide for the World's Most Adventurous Kid. It profiles 100 of the most extreme, mysterious, and weird but true places across 47 countries. For a look at what they've found, we're joined now by Atlas Obscura co-founder Dylan Thuris. Dylan, welcome. Thanks for having me here, Rick. So you used the word extreme in the beginning uh, right off the bat. That's a trendy word, and it it does Mm. resonate with people. What's an extreme site in here? We use the word extreme because we wanted to sort of frame what kind of book this is. All of these places aren't places you would actually necessarily want to take a family vacation or even could go. So, for example, Snake Island off Mm. the coast of Sao Paulo. The only people who are allowed to go there are the Brazilian Navy. And you have to get permission if you actually want to visit Snake Island. You have to travel with a doctor, don't you? That's right. You have to travel with a doctor who has the, the anti-venom with them, just in case. So that's Let's a, take the kids. Yeah, exactly. It's a wonderful thing to know about, not something we are necessarily advising okay. that uh, you make a summer adventure around. So that's the extreme. You also open the book with a, a beautiful uh, sentiment. You're inspiring them to reach out. You say, Dear Adventure, we're about to tell you one of the greatest secrets to exploring. Are you ready? Here it is. You are already somewhere amazing. <laughs> so that gives you a peek at the philosophy of this book, doesn't it? That's exactly right. And and one of the things, I've been going around and giving presentations to groups of kids in cafeterias and libraries. And one of the things I always try and get across at the end is I bring up wonders that are close to wherever we are. So it's mm-hmm. to point out that it's not just about you know, someplace off in Australia or Peru, that there's a place in rural New Jersey that is just as incredible and has a wonderful story to be told. So it's reminding them that it's about a a frame of mind and less about, you know, putting miles around the world. Yeah. You say this book is your passport to a world of hidden possibilities. And I I love the thought that you don't need to be rich. You don't have to have a passport. You don't have to have parents to take you to China. You can be wonderstruck by the world just by going downtown. That's right. I had a good personal example not too long ago, which is I I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, 
And it turns out that a couple miles from my home is a lab called Orfield Labs that was home to a place that was nicknamed the world's quietest room, an anoechic chamber where you could sit inside. And I got to do this. Mm. Slowly, you're able to start to hear the sounds of your body. And it's a really wild experience. And it was a perfect example of I lived there for, you know, 15 years and I I had no idea that was there. I love that. And it also just inspires kids to think of... uh science as part of uh, exploring the world. Clearly, you could look through this book and not leave your living room and kind of venture into zones where you you get excited about science or excited about history or excited about nature. You've got a a chapter on the the super collider and a 10,000-year clock in Texas and way above Norway, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. Talk a little bit about those from a kid's point of view. Yeah, I mean, a couple of those. and, And just to explain how the book works... You travel all around the world, but the connections are thematic. So you might start in Texas at this 10,000-year clock, this clock that's being built uh, and is made to run for 10,000 years. It's going to tick once a year and, I think, chime every 100. Hmm. And uh, and that's an example of long thinking, of sort of thinking about the future. And then Svalbard, the seed vault in Norway is another kind of example of that similar idea where it's planning for a long, long time in the future to keep genetic diversity safe. And so we wanted to sort of show kids not just wonders around the world, but some of the interconnections and ties between these things. So it really takes a young brain to new zones that they might not have thought about, like uh, the future. That's right. And it, and it lets them kind of make exciting connections and hopefully opens up questions. So you tell them about the Quechua Chaca in Peru, the last Incan bridge that's woven out of grass and has been remade each year for hundreds of years going back mm. to the, the height of Incan uh, empire. And, and then you connect that with the root bridges in India, which are grown out of the roots of two ficus elastica trees. And, and mm. hopefully out of that, kids come away thinking these bridges are incredible, but I wonder what other kinds of of, you know, arbitecture? Are there are there buildings grown out of plants? Like, mm. does this exist elsewhere in the world? The idea is hopefully this, you know, sort of sparks many more questions and quests. Arbitecture, I love it. And just for <laughs> a kid to be exposed to that, a kid even at my age to be exposed to that, you kind of go, oh, now when I'm exploring the world, I can look for arbitecture. We're talking about the wonderfully weird places and things kids like to explore right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest, Dylan Thuris, is co-founder of Atlas Obscura and a co-author of the new Atlas Obscura Explorer's Guide for the World's Most Adventurous Kid. Their website is atlasobscura.com. And when I read through the book, it feels like a celebration of diversity, as if you've got an agenda not to be looking (laughs) at the world from an ethnocentric point of view, which is a real challenge for a lot of Americans, especially in this day and age when I think we're more fearful and we tend to be more ethnocentric. Was that accidental or am I picking up something that you actually have a political agenda here? You're certainly picking up the right tone. I don't know that it came in as exactly a political agenda, but I I think the core of Atlas Obscura is about celebrating the diversity and plurality of the world and reminding people that what they think of as normal is bizarre to other people in the world. And, and you know, the things that we think are odd are, are quite regular and, and mundane in other places. And so just to celebrate some of that diversity is 
where you derive joy in travel yes. and, in, and experiencing the world. That's definitely baked into it. But I, for me, it's almost apolitical because it goes a little bit deeper than that. It goes to like the human soul. Yeah, I was being a little silly to say political, but I'm just saying that it's unfortunate that being open to diversity has to be political in a sense. Right. But what we're doing is letting kids know that our culture is not the center of everything and that you could actually remind kids, hey, the people on this planet who sit on something when they go to the bathroom are the oddballs because most people don't need a toilet. There's these kind of eurekas you get when you travel, and you can gently weave them into this education that your book provides. You also start the book with a packing list, and (laughs) you've got some interesting things included. I noticed a, a couple of things that I wondered, are you thinking about something in specific? You have an altimeter yeah, well, we, we send kids, these sort of explorers, to very high and very low, low places. So we just figured it was good to keep that in mind, you know, if you're going to be taking a, a submarine down to the ah. uh, the satellite graveyard off of New Zealand. That that would be an interesting place to use that. And uh, So yeah, to, we, to be we, aware we, that you're going to venture high and low and you should be prepared. Exactly. And, the, you know, the packing list is somewhere between practical and acknowledging that some of these places are are slightly off uh, of a standard traveler's Out of zone, like a Geiger counter. I don't, I hope that I'm not going to take my kids with a Geiger counter, but if you were going on a fantasy trip, what would you need a Geiger counter for? Well, I'll tell you, and when my kids are a little older, I would actually like to take this trip, even though people's eyebrows shoot up, but Hmm. to Chernobyl. And we've run some trips as an organization to Chernobyl, but it's ironic because people think immediately of, my gosh, why would you want to go to this irradiated zone? Right. there's that history, but it's over time become in a lot of ways like a nature preserve. You do bring a Geiger counter just to be sure and to check, but there's more radioactive background in parts of Manhattan than, than there are in, in much of Chernobyl. Mm. So it's actually a very different and kind of a beautiful natural experience besides all of the fascinating, disturbing kind of history of Chernobyl. Right. So, uh, and it causes kids a, to like, think about something that they wouldn't think about otherwise. Uh, absolutely. And you got goat treats, one of the 10 essentials. <laughs> What are you going to need goat in, treats for? Why don't you need goat treats? Uh, <laughs> well, there's a, a few possibilities, but one, of course, is the the tree-climbing goats of Morocco. And oh, goats yeah. love to climb everywhere. But, you know, in parts of Morocco, you can see multiple goats hanging out in the trees, and we just thought it would be generous to bring them something when Good you went to idea. visit. Good idea. Many times I wish I'd had a few goat treats, but I, I didn't have your book. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dylan Thuras, and the new book is... Atlas Obscura, Explorer Guide for the World's Most Adventurous Kid. One handy feature in the book is you've got latitude and longitude. You can actually type it into your smartphone, and it goes right to that spot on Google Maps. And that's a fun springboard for learning to let the kids delve more deeply into the places you feature in the book. And I think it just, for us, this is a feature sort of across the website and the book for adults. It's a way of reminding people this is the world that we all share. These are not sort of fantastical, made-up places. You live on this planet with all this wonder and incredible locations. It's just sort of grounding it in that. Dylan, one thing I noticed about the book is it's a little more honest and thoughtful than some other older books in this genre, the Ripley's, believe it or not, kind of approach to the world. Yeah, it was it was important to us. There's sort of both, when you're talking about strange and unusual things, there's a tendency to sort of have it be couched in this, isn't it weird? Isn't it so spooky? Isn't it whatever? And to kind of disrespect the subject matter. And the same thing happens 
with kids. So uh, oftentimes it really gets to be kind of almost patronizing to kids who actually at at ages 8 to 12, I think, are quite capable of coming to their own conclusions about stuff. So we just sort of wanted to present these things in their earnest, wonderful amazement and not tell kids how to feel about them. And I think that works really well. I think kids understand. They they respond to what's interesting about these locations and the history and the science. So, Dylan, in that regard, take us to China and talk about a couple of things that you thought would be inspiring for young travelers to know about. Sure. In China, we talk about the fact that rice, sticky rice, was used as a part of the mortar for the Great Wall of China. And and presumably, if you went looking for it, maybe you could sort of find, uh, you know, mm. you can find archaeological evidence of this. And then we take, you know, kids to Mongolia and talk to them about a library that is not a building, but in fact comes on the back of a camel uh, because kids there are, are so rural and remote that the library has to come to them. And it's a great, we could have done a whole series of borough libraries in Mexico and in South America. And and just a reminder again that the way that kids live and people live all over the world is filled with delightful difference and pluralism. And, and that is that itself is is one of the wonders of the world. That's really the spirit of this book. It's the spirit of Atlas Obscure in general, I think. Dylan Thuris, thanks for sharing your Atlas Obscure approach to the world in a package designed for the world's most adventurous kid. Thank you so much, Rick. You'll find links to our guests with the notes for each week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Guides from Lisbon tell us what's happening in their charming city in just a bit. But first, a top-rated guide to the D-Day sites of Normandy helps us commemorate the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings on June 6th. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. The beaches of Normandy hold the memories of thousands of soldiers and civilians who fought and died during the D-Day landings of American, British, and Canadian troops. Since nearly all of that generation have passed on, we now have to rely on history experts to relive the stories of the liberation of France and how that led to the end of Nazi tyranny in Europe in World War II. Some years ago, I had the pleasure of touring the D-Day sites in northern France with military historian Elwood von Seibold. Elwood moved to St. Mary Eglise to fulfill his lifelong dream of guiding others around the important battlefields, cemeteries, and memorials in Normandy. Let's revisit an interview we had with him that first aired on Travel with Rick Steves 10 years ago for the 65th anniversary of the D-Day landing. Elwood, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. So why did you move to Normandy? I moved to Normandy because I had a passionate interest in World War II for many, many years, ever since I was a tiny boy. And at a certain stage in my life, I realized that the moment was ready when I wanted to leave my work and I wanted to go and fulfill a lifelong passion by telling people about the history. We searched for houses for a long time and we eventually found a lovely house in the most historic town of St. Mary Glees. That was the first city that was uh, liberated, wasn't it? was the very first one to be liberated by the U.S. The, the kickoff point, really. That is correct. Now, do Canadians and Brits and Americans all go to Normandy with the same sort of interest? Yes, they do. They most definitely do. People from all over the world now, in actual fact, are coming to Normandy to look at what happened there on the 6th of June and the subsequent days. Almost all of the world is interested in that part of the world. It's really quite incredible. Um, wherever I go, people obviously sometimes ask you, 
where do you live? And you say, uh, St. Marigliese. And, and they all react. They all sure. know this famous little town. I remember the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, the movie. Yes. Um, there was a, a veteran going back to the Normandy the cemetery there. Yes. And his grandchildren, I think, just didn't get it. And they were all light and happy. And he was really moved. Yes. How do you prepare people? Or what advice do you have for people who are going to Normandy to, to properly get it? I always ask people what preparation they've done in the sense that have they read any books and have they seen any films? And the majority of people have done that. The books, of course, any amount of books come to mind. Of course, the uh, Stephen Ambrose, arguably the most famous of American historians, many, many people have read his lengthy books on D-Day. And that gives people a good overall, well-rounded appreciation of D-Day and its subsequent events. So have some background before you go there Indeed, to appreciate I think, it. I think that's very important. And there are obviously three films that I like and recommend to people prior to their coming. And one, of course, is that aged, wonderful old film, The Longest Day, made as long ago as 1963, if I remember rightly. Uh -huh. And uh, it may be old and it may be ancient and daringly shot in black and white in its time. But it is a very, very good portrayal of the events leading up to D-Day. Then, of course, you've got Saving Private Ryan. Everybody knows that film. And that, I think, was a film that broke the mold in many respects of the portrayal of armed conflict. And then, of course, you've got Band of Brothers. I think it's the sort of pinnacle, if you will, of realism. Hmm. And uh, that features the build-up to D-Day from the airborne perspective, the airborne point of view. Is it possible to visit D-Day and make it worthwhile as a day trip from Paris? Yes, it most certainly is. In fact, I would say that 50% of the people that I take around, they quite simply catch a train from Paris, from the Gare Saint-Lazare, and I pick them up in Carenton, and we do a, a day's tour, albeit it's a, it's a short, compact day. Sure. And I take them back to Carenton Station in time to catch the 6 o'clock train, and they're sitting in their favorite restaurant by 9 o'clock in the evening in Paris. Paris, indeed. So many of us have such limited time. If you're going to be selective and, and have a, a powerful experience, what are the top two or three sites you've just got to see? The sites you must see, without any question of doubt, is obviously you've got to see St. Marigliese, as you so rightfully said, the first town to be liberated. And then I would say Pointe Hoc, and then I would say Omaha Beach, culminating, if you will, in the, uh, in the visit to the American National Cemetery there at Colville-sur-Mer. So Ponto Hawk, that's where you get the craters and the German yes. pillboxes and yes. the gunning stations, and you get this dramatic bluff feeling and imagine the Allies yeah. climbing up that. Yes. And then Omaha Beach, that's where you walk on the beach with the center of the invasion. Yes. And then just above that bluff, is that where we have the American cemetery? That is correct, yes. So when you say Omaha yes. Beach, you're also saying that famous cemetery we always see. Yes, indeed. And what museum do you think is the best one that captures the, the story of the Normandy landings? That's a very hard question to answer. There are so many museums around there. And if you had just one museum to go to, I think the Airborne Museum at St. Marigliese itself, is, it probably will give you the most well-rounded experience. My favorite museum is the one in Cannes, C-A-E-N. The museum in Cannes, if you will, is trying to remind people that peace is the objective that we should all be now striving towards. And I would not disagree with that under any circumstances. But it doesn't try, it doesn't attempt. Okay, so it's not a to, war buff museum. It's not museum. a war, indeed. It's no, a, it's so a, it's a, it's, it has a lesson. It finishes with Nobel Peace Prize uh, yeah, thing. Yeah, indeed. I found it was a good look at war in the 20th century, and it celebrates the great Nobel Peace laureates. Yes. And it's very moving. But you're right, if you want a real war museum, you can find it at, you say, the Airborne Museum the in St. Mary's. That, that's right. And if you want one cemetery? If you want one cemetery, without any question of doubt, it's the National Cemetery at Colville-sur-Mer above Omar Beach. And what about a German cemetery? German cemetery is at a place called La Combe. 
that is by far the most evocative of all the German cemeteries, yes. I thought it was very evocative because it reminded me, a lot of German kids, this is late in the war, wasn't it? Hitler was like digging deep for people to fight. Yeah, indeed. So you got 16-year-olds there, 18-year-olds fighting it. 22,000 of them are in there. Amazing. I'm with uh, Elwood van Seibold, and we're talking about D-Day and Normandy landings in World War II, and let's talk with Michael in Cincinnati. Well, I I really just had a comment on the uh, what a powerful and moving experience it is to visit that Omaha Beach. You know, you consider the uh, blood and treasure that we left on that beach. It's just such a beautiful place. It's meticulously cared for. It's a really serene, peaceful kind of a visit. And, you know, there's so much history there. I took my son there in uh, 2005, and we just really uh, enjoyed the experience. I always like to remind people, by the way, that when you look at the cemetery now, the cemetery in actual was a scene of fighting itself. It was a scene of German emplacements. It was a situation where fighting actually took place. And as you so rightly say, the serenity, the calm, and the peace that exists today is truly moving. And I go there every day in the summer, and I never cease to be moved by visiting this uh, amazing situation. Michael, you're just reminding people that it's a powerful pilgrimage to go there and remember uh, the heroics of that day, aren't you? Oh, it absolutely is. You know, and you you see Saving Private Ryan and the Ken Burns series, and you hear from the people who are actually there, and I, mm-hmm. I just can't imagine being a 19-year-old kid mm-hmm. and guns firing on you. I just, I just can't imagine what that would be like. You see the viewpoint that the Germans had on this incoming ships, and it really is, you know, moving experience. It's almost a shame for an American, I think, to miss that when they go to France. Oh, absolutely. All right, Michael, it sounds like you had a good time. Thanks for your call. Yeah. All right, thank you. This is Alan Melville. The paratroops are landing. They're landing all around me as I speak. They've come in from the sea, and they're fluttering down, red, white, and blue parachutes fluttering down, and they're just about the best thing that we've seen for a good many hours. With the 75th anniversary of the D-Day battle, we're glad to present to you an interview we first aired on Travel with Rick Steves 10 years ago with military historian Elwood von Seibold. Elwood has been providing custom tours of D-Day sites for many years from his home base in Normandy. He includes information about the area and his team of guides at ddaybattletours.com. Elwood also hosted TV specials about D-Day called The American Road to Victory and the Americans on D-Day, which you might find scheduled again on your local public TV station. When I first started traveling, there were veterans from World War One going to Verdun. Yes. No longer happens. Oh, I don't think so. And I think that there's probably less interest in Verdun now than there was 30 years ago. That's a very interesting statement, and I very often question many of my American customers as to their knowledge about the American involvement in World War One, and it's quite astounding. I would say about 99% of them have no idea that right. they even participated in World War I at all, which is such a pity. When I think back that your great general, Blackjack Pershing, after his time as leader of the American army, spent the rest of his life trying to make sure that the American nation never forgot the American sacrifice in World War I. And I'm afraid that all of his work seems to have been virtually in vain. And you're hopeful about World War II. I'm hopeful about World War II, very much so, because let's face it, the First World War was never recorded in film in anywhere the same way that the Second World War has been recorded. Do the French remember our heroics in World War II? Yes, they do. There's no question of that. 
the French people, especially in the Normandy area, are ever mindful of the American sacrifice in that area. And they are, I would say, without any question of a doubt, they are always very grateful about the American sacrifice and the Allied sacrifice in, in general, may mm -hmm. I say. I was just at a beautiful mom-and-pop chateau in Burgundy and the uh, aristocratic family, the noble family that lives there, they pulled out their 48-star American flag that they flew over their chateau on D-Day when they realized the Allies were coming to Lovely. free them. Yes. And it was a very touching thing. And, yes, it is. And I, I just believe from the bottom of my heart that the French always will be thankful for and remember what we did, yes. along with the British and the Canadians and, and our allies. We mustn't forget the British and the Canadians, of course, absolutely. We have Mike on the line from Georgia. Any comments for Elwood? Well, it's just a very awe-inspiring thing. I've been to Europe a couple of times, and I've visited the cemetery in Luxembourg City, and it's just an awesome sight, just knowing the amount of sacrifice these young men so long ago gave. I haven't been to the uh, D-Day area yet, is there any recommendations that you might have if I had a two-day length of time to take most advantage of it in that particular area? Well, would, uh, where would somebody sleep as a home base, and what would they do if they had two days to see the best of the Normandy sites? Right. If you want to have two days to see the best of the Normandy sites, I would recommend that you stay in the very attractive small town of Bayou. That is a good central base from which to take your excursions, if you will. Bayou is roughly halfway down between the right and the left-hand flank. So if you talk about the right-hand flank, the right-hand flank of the invasion was Sutmarigles. And the left-hand flank is a place called Wistrom, which is way down at the British end of things. And Bayou is roughly halfway between those two points. So you would strike out on day one and do the American end, and then strike out on day two and then do the British invasion beaches. And that would be a place to base yourself. And Bayou is a beautiful town which has a, another invasion history. It's got the famous Bayou Tapestry. Indeed. Because that was from where the Normans invaded England in the one date we all know from the Middle Ages. Yes, 1066. 1066, yes. <laughs> hey, Mike, thanks for your call. Thank you. We have David on the line in Pennsylvania. Yes, hi, Rick. How are you? Doing good. Do you have a comment or a question for Elwood? Yes, I do. Uh, I have had the opportunity to visit a number of different places throughout Europe, and I always make it a point to try to see many of the World War II historical sites. I have been to France and to uh, Point de Hoc and Omaha Beach and the D-Day site. What I was really interested in finding out was uh, with regard to the United Kingdom, whether there are any of the air bases where the B-17s flew from. I had family members that were in a B-17 crew and uh, was wondering if there were any spots still around of those air bases where you could see those. That's a very interesting question. Now, you'll have to understand that I'm not an expert on U.S. air bases in the U.K. There are remains of U.S. air bases, and let's, let's remember that in Norfolk and Suffolk, there was literally hundreds of them, hundreds and hundreds of them, it would be a question in your case of finding out which squadron your relative actually flew with. And that would be easy then to find out the name of the aerodrome or the name of the village which the aerodrome would have been near. And from that point, of course, then it's simply a question of getting out on the ground and going there and having a look around. Now, I do know that many of the old flight control towers of these old aerodromes are now listed property and are being restored in some instances by the local council authorities. So therefore, you, you do have a good chance of perhaps finding out the remains of the aerodrome in which, from which your relative flew uh, B-17s. 
Well, that's outstanding. Uh, do you know if there's any websites or anything where that type of information could be researched? Yes. Your first protocol I would suggest would be the Imperial War Museum at Duxford. Now, Duxford itself, of course, was a World War II airfield, and that is the Imperial War Museum's Air Force base, if you will, from which actually a B-17 itself does fly regularly during the summer. There's hundreds of aircraft there, and that would be the place I would suggest you go, first of all, to start your research. Now, there's an Imperial War Museum actually in London also. That is correct, Which is one of the best war museums in Europe. Indeed. It's awesome. Don't miss that. It's on the south bank of the Thames, I believe. Yes. Also, Dover has a great World War II museum. Surprisingly, you go there to see the Roman Lighthouse and the Old Castle, and you realize there's a wonderful Battle of Britain museum, I believe. And Eden Camp, outside of York, is a prize-winning museum, an award-winning museum, a former prison camp, I think, for German prisoners. And it talks about the uh, British war effort. A lot of great sites in England to work into your itinerary when you're going back there to learn about World War II. Yes. I'm speaking with Elwood von Seibolt, and he's an Englishman who has now moved to Normandy to follow his passion, which is help visitors understand and appreciate the sights and the memories and the lessons from the Battle of Normandy. We have Dan on the phone from Bellingham, Washington. Hi, Dan. Thanks for your call. Ah, thank you. My girlfriend and I, we have a kind of a break between college, and we're going to take about a two and a half month trip to Europe and just backpack around. You know, it's going to be full of like fun, excitement, but we really want to go to Auschwitz. And we're kind of wondering how to prepare ourselves for that. Is there a guided tour, or should we just kind of walk around ourselves? I can probably handle Auschwitz, and then we'll let Elwood talk about how do you handle this heavy-duty stuff. But uh, Auschwitz, I think of all the concentration camp experiences, is the most powerful. And when you go there, there are audio guides, there's a movie to watch, and Auschwitz is actually two camps. There's the original camp, and then there's the huge camp nearby. Birkenau. Birkenau, right. Birkenau, that's right, yes. And you want to make sure you see both of those as a side trip from Krakow. The broader issue, uh, Elwood, I'd like you to talk about for Dan, is you're going through Europe. It's just fun in the sun, and it's light and happy. And all of a sudden, you're going to go to Orador Serglan, a town that was uh, murdered and burned and left in rubble because of uh, Nazis getting even with uh, the local people for killing one of their officers. Or you're going to the uh, Normandy beach landing sites. Or you're going to a concentration camp. Yes. How do people handle that? What advice do you have for that? The advice I have for people is that you read about the events that transpired in a place which you know in advance is going to be emotionally difficult for you to get to grips with. And that is the best preparation I can say. And the other thing is that I always say to people that take a guide if you can. Now, my first and only visit to Auschwitz was I went with a guide. And that enabled me to keep a hold on my emotions because Auschwitz is almost impossible to talk about the feeling which you have when you first set sight on this most terrible of locations. And I was afraid, I was literally afraid, very apprehensive about how I would react to the situation. And this guide was very helpful and kept me, kept me going, kept jostling me along, kept things moving along. So I didn't have time to become overwrought. I found a local guide and I spent a whole day at Auschwitz. And, and if the term, I don't think the word fascinating can be applied here, but it, it led me through the day and I came out with a much greater understanding of Auschwitz as a place and what it represented and what happened there. Mm-hmm. But... I found, if I remember rightly, I found a local guide in Krakow, and we drove in this guide's car, and it, it was an extremely informative day, and that's what I would suggest you do. Go to Krakow. There is, if I remember rightly, a Jewish center there, and they will provide you with a, with a top-rate guide who really know what they're talking about, and you get exactly what happened, and uh, you will come away uh, okay. uh, much and, uh, enriched for that experience, may I say. 
Thank you very much for your call, Dan. Thank you. So, Elwood, I like that idea that you would be with a person who does this routinely to keep you grounded and so on and not get too um, heavy about it. On the other hand, it's a, it's a life-changing experience to see these inspirational sites, and I celebrate the opportunity to actually come away from my trip with an understanding of, of some of the tragedies in our recent history, yes. and I also promise myself to remember my feelings and my emotions and go home and think of myself as a more tuned-in and, and uh, appreciative citizen of the planet that can really work hard to help us learn from history and not repeat it needlessly. Yes, that is the most important message of the day, I think. Let's uh, remember where we've come from, and that will, as the old saying goes, give us an understanding of where we're going to. Exactly. It's the best and most powerful souvenir of any visit to Normandy. I agree. I've been speaking with Elwood von Seibold. Thank you, Elwood, so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Rick. 877-333-7425 is our number, as next we get tips for best enjoying the Portuguese capital of Lisbon. You can send us an email at radio at ricksteves.com. With a revitalized waterfront and renovated historic districts, Lisbon promises to be one of Europe's most appealing destinations this year. It's a city of around a half a million, where the Tejo River meets the Atlantic and comes packed with plenty of old-world charm and, and interesting neighborhoods to explore. We're joined now by guides Cristina Duarte and Claudia Costa to help you plan a trip to their beautiful city. Cristina, Claudia, welcome. Bon dia. Bon dia. Bon, bon dia. dia. <laughs> All right. Hey, Cristina and Claudia, I noticed that Lisbon is, there's a lot of investment in the city. The waterfront is more people-friendly than ever. It used to be an industrial wasteland. The wonderful Avenue Liberdad is like the Champs-Élysées. It's got trees. It's got outdoor cafes. It's got new cobbles. I love what's going on in Lisbon. What is your observation, Claudia, about uh, how Lisbon is transforming before our very eyes? I think it's very important. Uh, well, if I see that with the eyes of uh, a local that still lives in the Salazar time, maybe they say, oh, this is too much and this and that. But in Lisbon, it was important to do works, yeah. not for the tourists, but for the locals itself. Yeah. So, uh, yes, they are doing lots of beautiful renovation in the facades with the tiles, with the azulejos, as we say. Those are the beautiful uh, colored tiles? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Tiles. They still, even if when they are doing new buildings, they keep the tiles in the azulejos. facades. Azulejo. All right. And then uh, they are doing lots of renovation in the old areas like Alfama, mm-hmm. Moreria. Now it's in Moreria that uh, they are taking action. So this is an interesting thing. As uh, Lisbon becomes more affluent and takes care of its neighborhoods and their this gentrification, we also have the risk of becoming like the Ramblas in Barcelona, where you lose all of your personality and it becomes one big tourist shop. Yes. Christina, what is Lisbon concerned about in that regard? Lisbon has been, is right now more lively than ever because mm-hmm. those areas that were residential areas, but they were pretty dark in the evening and there was not much people around because, you know, you live in the place, you don't go to the restaurants. I mean, you don't go to the restaurants every day. Mm-hmm. You have your home, you, you eat at home. So with this new population coming, more tourists, so more cafes open, more restaurants. So it's good. And the cities are more lively in the evening. Right. You have people in the streets until very late, like midnight, one o'clock in the morning, that mm-hmm. in the past you would not see. You were kind of scared of getting out. It was, it and was right a now it's filled. Yes. Yeah. Right now it's full of people on the streets in the evening. Now, that my, is that is the good part. I fell in love with Lisbon mm-hmm. in the Alfama. That was the old salty sailors quarter. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, now it's become 
less lively, and it feels like it's lost something, but there's a new neighborhood, which is kind of the new Alfama. Can you describe that? Uh, Mororia. Yes. So it's exactly the other side. Alfama is in the hill of the castle. So between the castle and the river. Exactly, overlooking the river. So it means that it was through all the centuries, always the noble part of the city because it was the harbor and it was where everything happened. Now, Moraria, we are exactly on the back of that hill. So Uh, on the north face. Is that literally where the Moors live? Exactly. Would that be the workers or the the outcasts, the the immigrants and so on? Yes, exactly. So that would be the cheaper neighborhood. Exactly. A long, long time ago. A long, long time ago. Exactly because it was not that handy for the the, the river and the bay and the merchandises and and the trade. Today, it's just bursting with little restaurants. Little restaurants because when it was no longer possible to live in the Alfama, so gentrification started and they had to move moved to somewhere, and they still wanted to stay in town, so they went to the less expensive part of the city, so to the back of the hill. To the back of the hill. Now, Claudia, the Moria is this characteristic, long-forgotten, now-recognized, colorful neighborhood. It's no coincidence that that's where Fado came from. Is that correct? Yes, the Fado music, well, I can start by the name of it, Fatum, so it's a, a Latin word that means the destiny. Right? The destiny. The destiny. <laughs> so yes, it started in those Back little streets. Uh, those I mean, little who's the most famous? Wasn't the most famous? Well, Fado there, there singer was Fado from singer the... was Amalie Rodriguez. Uh, she died in uh, 1999. But oh. nowadays we have other very famous singers, yeah. uh, such as Marisa. She's pretty famous. Uh, Ana Mora. She's also. Because I was very walking famous. through the streets of Moro Rio last year, and there was pictures on the walls yes. of, the, of the great Fado. That... And also, you have pictures on the walls of the population. those who live there. That is very interesting. I love the way Lisbon is doing this. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Lisbon with our two tour guide friends, Claudia Costa and Cristina Duarte. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Heidi's calling in from San Diego. Hello. I lived in Portugal for a couple years as a child and have had the opportunity to return many times since. Um, Most recently in 2016 uh, with my in-laws and my four children, my husband. Um, and they loved it. They had been to Italy. They had been to Germany, many parts, and Portugal was just wonderful. In fact, when we came home, they told their relatives about it, and relatives who had usually visited France decided to also visit Portugal. So what was it about it that was so lively to them? It's it's smaller. It's a different culture. You know, you expect it to be Europe, so you kind of think stereotypical France or what mm-hmm. you know from Italy, but it's it's different. It's its own country. And uh, I've seen a lot of changes over the years as I've visited as well, which... Um, your guides alluded to. Heidi, when you were in Lisbon, did you stumble onto any good pastries? Oh, my. Let's talk about pastries. <laughs> well, another thing I appreciate about Portugal and that I love, probably because I lived there as a child as well, but their food and their pastries are very different. People think croissants or strudels. Oh. That's not what they do in Portugal. They do amazing things with eggs and just all different kinds of pastries. And that was one of the joys of taking my family that hadn't been there there was to introduce yeah. them to these foods. Well, you remember course, the, the, the famous, famous uh, egg tart. Pastel de nata. Pastel de nata. Now, that's interesting. Pastel yeah. de nata, that's the generic term for if you live anywhere in Portugal. But I, I sense a little bit of Lisbon pride here. Uh, yes. Claudia, why did you say pastel 
Palem. Because everyone knows the pastel. Pastel is a pastry, right? Made yeah. with puff pastry. But pastel de Belém was the first pastel de nata. Okay. Belém, Belém is in, in Lisbon, near the beautiful monastery there. And it was the monks that start doing the recipe for the cakes. At Belém, B-E-L-E-M. Yeah. Correct. And there's a famous place there. They crank yeah. out yes. thousands of these and has a secret recipe. But I find all over Lisbon there are little neighborhood bakeries that crank out this oh, pastel yes. de, de, de nata. De, de, de nata. <laughs> there is a contest. Lisbon makes a contest every year for the best yep. of the year. One gets famous and they mm -hmm. say they have the best pastry, but I think it's a sort of a interesting dynamic where it's the best pastry because they make a lot of them and they sell them hot uh, out yes. of the oven. Yes. And if you get a, the best pastry three hours later, it's not the best pastry. No, you want it still hot yes. right out of the oven. Yes. And yes, if you yes. see a long line of local people waiting for their little... But you have oven. a few little pastry coffee shops in downtown area where you find the same very good pastries very good. Very good in the case. Yes. And they're also, you know, warm and they are just wonderful. Can I add one tidbit about pastels de Belay? Sure. There's often a line going out, so people assume if they want to get their pastel de Belay, they go stand in the line. Well, you can go in and sit down, and there will be a server that can serve you pastel de Belay right there. You don't need to wait in that big, long line. It's beautiful inside. You're smart. That's a very um, good tip. Yes. <laughs> uh, all you the are local. Oh, my goodness, <laughs> Heidi. You know how to do it. You are local. <laughs> don't tell them the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> sit down. You'll be served. It's sort of counterintuitive. You yes, sit down. You'll be served. Yes. A lot faster than the people who yes, wait in line. This is what we do. Oh, and they got the powdered sugar and the cinnamon, <laughs> the cinnamon on it. Is, yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Heidi, you're making me want to fly back to Lisbon. Thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Our guides to Lisbon are Christina Duarte and Claudia Costa as they help us get ready to enjoy their city. Our number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425. Rachel's calling from San Jose. Rachel, do you have a trip coming up to uh, Lisbon? I do. So I will be traveling with two teenagers, a 13-year-old and an almost 16-year-old. And we're going to be spending about a month in Spain. And I have a trip to Lisbon planned for two nights. And I know that they're just going to be a little bit tired of seeing the cathedrals and the museums. So I'm, I'm looking for something that would be great for teenagers to do mm. in Lisbon. Teenagers in Lisbon. First of all, I have to go to bed for Portugal. 30 days in Spain, two days in Lisbon got to revisit That's that. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I'll, I'll leave that to you. Now, let's say you're a, you're a mom with two kids, two teenagers in Lisbon, Cristina. All right. I like the nation's park, what is called yeah. the Parque das Nações, where mm. we had the Expo 1998. It is a brand new district of the city. You can visit the Oceanarium. So that's and, one of the best aquariums uh, oh, in yes. all of Europe. It is a beautiful aquarium. I mm -hmm. mean, and uh, even if they say our oh, aquarium is for children, don't, don't, you go, because it's beautiful, it's magic. Mm -hmm. And all that park is also magic. You can rent bicycles. some bicycles and then going along the river, and you have some, of course, shops. Shopping malls and uh, you know teenagers, they also like to look at shopping the windows. Malls. This yes. is a great shopping yeah, mall. It's, it's, yes. it's a wonderful architecture. No, but no, it, it is, it is it true. Is. And you know, isn't what? it a famous a, architect yes. or something? I just yes, walked in there. A, with that. Well, Spanish architect. I'm, <laughs> Spanish architect. <laughs> I'm talking. I, I'm talking as a mother of yeah. a 15 year old and a 20 year old, and I know that uh, it's not for the shopping, but they like to see what uh, the other kids uh, yeah. are, are using. What, what, what it is involved. You get off the yes. train, and by the way, Rachel, this is park of the name. Yes. And it has a big train station there, a yes. metro station. Metro station called Orient. So the Orient, Orient. the Orient Metro station. station. Yes. And then is it 
Calatrava that's designing this hub, this transportation yes, yes. hub? Yes, it's very beautiful. looks like palm trees. So <laughs> e- even though it is Spanish, it's very beautiful. Yeah. Oh, of course, of <laughs> course. <laughs> Nuestros hermanos. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Another thing in downtown area that they like to do is that you have now these kind of scooters that they like, or they have tours. Actually, they are oh, sun tours. Those are those little tuk-tuks. Yes, or there are some tours also with segways, uh-huh. and the kids like to do it. Yeah. But because the city is very, it's lots of cobblestones, I would rather yeah. advise you to do the, the, the segway tour. No, the segway. Oh, the segway. The segway in Belain district because okay. it's flat and smooth. Another thing that they will probably enjoy if it is good weather is taking the train from Lisbon to Cascais. So yeah. C-A-S-C-I-S. It's 35 minutes along the river and then the ocean. You stop in Cascais for the beach, and it's just lovely. And it's just a, a nice break from all those cathedrals that you're saying that you are going to see. Now, you do have Lisbon overrun now by these. If you've been traveling in India, the little taxis, there are three-wheel taxis with a with a canopy over them. And they're kind of a, a noisy problem in Lisbon. But if I was a, a mom or a dad with two kids... I would consider hiring one of these tuk-tuks. They're independent business people, and they pretend like they're tour guides. And you arrange for a price, and it fits three people quite easy, three, two or kids. Or more, because yeah. they are they they actually several. up to six Was, electrical. Oh, bigger, yeah. they, right now, they are mostly. And then you have a character who's your driver, and you have this fun little unforgettable experience on a three-wheel motorcycle, and you go through town. That and sounds fun, too. It's a lot yes. of fun. And then if I can add, I think it's also fun to use one of the funiculars, the cable cars. Oh, for yeah. sure. It's I think like, they will enjoy that. It's all the charm of San Francisco, but yeah. it speaks Portuguese and it's much older. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Have fun, Rachel. Thanks for your call. Thank you so much. Claudia Costa and Cristina Duarte are our guides to this year's Highlights in Lisbon, Portugal on Travel with Rick Steves. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Christopher from Long Island, New York, has a question in an email he sent to us. Christopher writes, I'm taking my husband to Portugal for his 50th birthday. What are some of the tourist spots that embody Lisbon that we shouldn't miss, and it needs to be LGBT-friendly? So that's an interesting issue. We've got a gay couple here. They're going to Lisbon. I know there are certain places in Spain that are very, very popular and famous as, you know, gay resorts. In Lisbon, is a gay couple comfortable on the street? Yes, actually, there is not a specific place that I say, well, go to this place, I recommend this place or the other, because actually, Lisbon, it's uh, gay-friendly. We don't put, it's not even an issue. So it's not uh, an issue. I, it's is, not even an issue. It's like uh, every restaurant will be good, every okay. hotel will be good, and any any bar, beautiful bar, overlooking, romantic, overlooking places. Nice. That I can give you a tip for, Okay, so for. gay yes. or straight. <laughs> yes. Let's say it's yeah, an anniversary. Straight, yes. An anniversary. Yes. Where would you go for a nice romantic dinner? A nice romantic dinner. I like Bairro Alto. And in Bairro Alto, there is the independent that has a rooftop that is beautiful. And you can have a dinner over there and having a beautiful view over over the castle. There is also another called The Roof. Mm-hmm. Which is in overlooking Moraria ah, and the uh, overlooking the square and also rooftops because as we have Lisbon is all done There's with all the hills, yeah. so the views are amazing. For a bar, if you would just go for a cocktail in the end of the evening or the sunset, that is the most beautiful sunset time of the light of Lisbon is the sunset. Nice. There is a hotel in Alfama called Memo Alfama. 
and go to the bar over there because it's overlooking the river. You think that you you are out of the world because nice. it's it's very hidden. Not everybody knows. It. Well, now everybody will know it. <laughs> uh, not necessarily romantic, but a very beautiful dinner is. Yeah. Uh, I just it was my favorite discovery last year when I was in Lisbon. Is taking the ferry across from Lisbon to the fishing community directly across, and there's a right next to the ferry dock. There's a beautiful fish restaurant. Yes. What, what is the name of that town? Casillas. Yes, Casillas. Casillas. We have lots the, of little yeah, good this, fish this is, restaurants over there. Yeah. Oh, you, you just get off the ferry, uh, you turn right, and there it is. And it's got a view of the harbor, it's got yes. a view of Lisbon, and it's the yes. best fish, and it's filled yes. with hungry locals. You know, there is another part of the city that usually we don't mention, but I think is, in my opinion, it's really nice. It's called Alcantara, between uh, the city center and Belém. Mm-hmm. Alcantara. Alcantara. Yes. A-L-C-A-N-T-A-R-A. Is where is the Alex factory. Yes, oh, that's, that's what I was saying. That's a uh, former industrial area that's become mm-hmm. trendy with lots mm-hmm. of clubs. Yes, yeah, yes. and yeah. you have the dogs also, nice uh, restaurants, little restaurants, good fish. Uh, also, you have the view from what, the river. What's the Portuguese word for ducks? Docas. Docas. D-O-C-A-S. So if you ask for the docas, that would be this yes. industrial area that's trendy now. There's so much to think about if we're going to Lisbon. Gail's calling in from Albany, Oregon. Gail, thanks for your call. Hi. Um, yes, I've got a little bit different question. We're going to be staying for two weeks in Lisbon, visiting family, but not staying with them and not having a car. And where would you suggest and what's the state of a little bit longer-term rentals in, in Lisbon? Well, Airbnb is so popular these days, and if you're staying for a while, you'll save a lot of money by not staying yes. in a hotel and staying in an Airbnb. Yes, I would recommend that. Yeah, yes. and then you're in a little community. You feel like you're settling in. I don't bother with an Airbnb for one or two nights because I just like the hotel service. But if you're staying for a couple of weeks, you want to go shopping and stock your pantry and uh, feel like you live there. And you could choose a good neighborhood with Airbnb. I like Chiado. So yeah. C-H-I-A-D-O, Chiado area. I mm-hmm. like it because it's very, very walking friendly to everywhere you want to go. Yeah. And from that, uh, Chiado, everything that is around, Bairro Alto, Bica, Santa Catarina. But uh, you have a, a huge choice of uh, apartments, very nice apartments in that area. All right, Gail, have fun. All right, thank you so much. Two weeks in Lisbon, that sounds great. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Lisbon with our two guides, Christina Duarte and Claudia Costa. So let's just finish our discussion by reminding our travelers that if they want to go during festival time, there's a lot of color and enthusiasm and passion. What is the best season for festivals in Lisbon? Definitely June. Everything happens in June. We call it the month of the popular saints, the patron saints. Mm -hmm. So Lisbon uh, celebrates its patron saint that is St. Anthony, so the 12th to the 13th. St. John in Porto, the 23rd to the 24th. And then in Sintra, in so many other cities, is the 28th to the 29th, so the 29th of June. But it's also the month of Portugal because we celebrate the day of Portugal, which is the 10th. And the whole city of Lisbon has the city celebrations. So there is color all over, concerts all over also. In Alfama, they do the Cash Alfama that is just for Fado. You buy a ticket 
for two or three days and in different venues. You just mm. jump from oh, one venue great. to another. So you can go to the the tourist information sites exactly. and so on and learn about that. And there's probably also a lot of travelers that didn't make reservations for hotels wandering around in the streets looking for a hotel. So it's a crowded time, I think, in June. But it's really fun because oh, yeah. I really recommend you. It's my favorite time in Lisbon. While it also has a local, it's really fun. Oh, that's mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. You okay. have sangria, you have beer, you have sardines, you have uh, you have lots of music, Tomato lots salad, of fun. Yes. <laughs> and you can also dance with, uh, with the local. So. <laughs> June in Lisbon. Okay. Christina Duarte, Claudia Costa, thank you so much for uh, helping us put our dreams into action here when it comes to visiting you. your beautiful city. Obrigado. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Casimira Hall. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. We had editing help this week from Sarah McCormick. Special thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. You'll find guest information, program extras, and you can listen again on demand. Our show notes are updated weekly at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week with more travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.